Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 3rd, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky, and I'm not watching you. But somebody could be watching you, or listening to your phone calls, or going through your personal records. The future of privacy is the subject of the special single-topic September issue of Scientific American magazine. I spoke with Editor-in-Chief John Rennie about the issue this past Friday. Let's first talk about where did this idea to do this as our single topic issue come from? Well, the idea has been around for a while because it ties in so well with both technological issues and certain very important policy ones. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a given that uh, we live in the information age. Huge parts of our economy and our lives otherwise uh, consist of, of us shuttling information around in, in different ways. And we have more and more uh, technologies that facilitate that. What sometimes we can forget is that that information is is our information. It's information about us. It's about information about things that we care about. And uh, although the uh, the expansion uh, through all of these technologies of of ways of exchanging information increases the different kinds of services and goods that can be available to us. At the same time, it does open up lots of potential liabilities because you never know whether somebody is going to be looking at your information when you wouldn't want them to. So we had felt Scientific American had a, a very good reason to look at this kind of issue just from the, the technological standpoint. Um, but also, of course, there are so many political considerations that have also uh, been bearing a lot on uh, what people have been making of matters relating to privacy and security. Uh, obviously, ever since 9-11, people have uh, had very strong security concerns, and uh, that has increased because of the what are seen as the extraordinary times. There have been more and more calls within the government for us to be expanding the, the range of surveillance uh, that we would make both of our physical beings in public spaces, uh, but also just of the information that we have. All of that together just uh, suggested that this was a, a very, very rich topic for us to look into, and I think uh, the the future of privacy issue we've put together bears that out. One of the interesting things you bring up is this uh, this idea that more and more, you know, we're we're just willy nilly in some ways exposing ourselves on the internet, but that that seems to be almost of no concern to people under a certain age. Right. One of the uh, the articles in the issue, actually the, the final one, it talks about the end of privacy. And it talks about sort of a, a generational change, but uh, um, this shift of, of the idea of that many people are completely comfortable um, using social networking sites like uh, Facebook and MySpace and so forth to really live their lives in a kind of public scrutiny that uh, once would have just been inconceivable. Uh, in many ways, we don't really know what all the consequences of that are, are going to be. There may be a lot of things that people are uh, putting up online these days that they will come to regret down the line, uh, but it may also suggest that we are really looking at, at, a, at a change in the way that we view privacy. But something that a number of the authors point out is that when we talk about privacy, um, our modern notions of privacy are sort of a historical artifact anyway. Um, one point is that, you know, at a time when we all lived in small villages, frankly, everybody knew everybody else's business. In a lot of ways, it's, it's really only been in the past couple of hundred years that it's been possible for people to achieve something like the the sort of privacy that we have taken for granted. So this may be sort of regression to the norm that way. 
That's an interesting point. You can have privacy by being a hermit up in the mountains or by living in a hugely dense city, but you really can't have privacy in a small town. Right. Well, you know, that's the, the nature of, of society. We we deal with other people. And when we deal with other people, we make things about ourselves available to them. Uh, they get to know us. And uh, in that process, we lose a little bit of control over some information that we have about ourselves. The real question is whether or not the, uh, the spate of new technologies that that uh, are now coming out and new ones that will continue to come out, uh, whether they do anything to help us regain some control over that uh, access to our information or whether or not they just uh, increase the rate at which that information slips through our fingers. The answer is that it's actually some of both and a lot will depend on, on the kind of regulatory structures and other, other decisions we make about implementing these technologies that determines just what the balance in that is. And another issue is, you know, you may be putting things up there that expose you to embarrassment. And that's one thing if 20 years from now you're embarrassed because there's a video of you doing something stupid on the web. But then there's the stuff that's really important where somebody can clean out your bank account, which goes way beyond embarrassment. Right. Well, you know, that's that's an interesting notion. Um, Esther Dyson, who's a writer and uh, well-known member of the, the Digerati, she, she wrote the keynote article talking about uh, the, the notion of privacy 2.0, which did go to this way in which we're, we're rethinking what privacy really is. And, and she made what I think it probably is, is, is a very good argument in there that a lot of the times when we talk about privacy, we tend to rope in a lot of concerns that maybe shouldn't be seen as ones relating directly to privacy itself. They're security concerns that can actually be separated from that. An example that she gives, for example, is, uh, and then in fact we have another article writing about genetic privacy, there are lots of concerns that people have about with uh, electronic medical record keeping that information, um, health information about ourselves could maybe slip out to other people or to, uh, to agencies that we wouldn't like to. Like, do we, if we have certain uh, genetic traits, uh, do we necessarily want uh, insurance companies to know about that if that becomes the basis for them to decide that they're not going to extend medical insurance to us anymore. Right. Some uh, kind of predisposition to a disease that you don't even have, but they decide we're not going to take the chance on you because you have a 12% chance of getting this disease versus somebody else who has a 2% chance. Right. And of course, as we start to, you know, it becomes more and more routine for people to be getting some kinds of genetic profiles made of themselves. And as we understand what the genes do better and better, those kinds of, of connections will start to come out. So, I mean, this is one concern that often gets raised about, about privacy. But uh, a point that uh, Esther Dyson makes is that, that really that goes to uh, questions about health insurance itself. If we wanted to live in a society um, in which everybody was guaranteed health insurance, we could decide that was the case. It's not really a matter of privacy as such. It's privacy within that matrix of the existing insurance establishment. Exactly. And so there are other a whole other set of decisions we could make that have nothing to do with privacy, but that could um, provide some kind of security for us. Uh, similarly, there, there are lots of issues about, you know, people worry 
about like getting hold of, of say somebody's social security number or, or you losing control of your social security number. Well, there's a question of maybe what we need to do is not worry about the privacy of that social security number, because let's face it, whether we want to or not, we often give out our social security numbers all the time. The, the answer may be that it may not be, we try, should we try to make it difficult for people who are not us to use that social security number and get our bank accounts or other valuable records. So, uh, she makes a number of different points about, about the, the changing state of privacy this way and that in the future what is really going to be important is, uh, most of us will want to try to have better ways of, of regulating the degree of access that we grant over certain kinds of critical information. Um, there are some kinds of information I don't care if the world knows. There may be a subset of related pieces of information, though, that I only want my doctors to know or I only want my wife to know and, and so forth. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether we can develop ways of, of regulating access to the information, even though, in a sense, the information is no longer private in a, in a deep, dark, secret way. And she also makes very important points about the fact that you, you really want to maintain uh, people's control over information when you're getting into situations in which uh, governments or businesses have, have a kind of asymmetrical ability to demand information or to get information about you that you can't reciprocate. She makes the argument that we should have a certain level of safeguards about, about uh, the privacy of our information, but quite frankly, government Governments and businesses largely should have them uh, should be much more open because it's very important for us to be able to monitor them and uh, blow the whistle on any wrongdoing they're doing, so we can safeguard against uh, any kinds of abuses. Which is exactly the opposite situation that currently exists for the most part. That's right. Um, in, in fact, that's a concern that uh, uh, Whitfield Diffie and Susan Landau, two of our other authors, get into because they talk about the expanding uh, brave new world of wiretapping. Um, wiretapping is not new. People have actually been um, tapping communications a lot longer than people might might have thought. Since, the, I think, the telegram, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's well, right. Well, I mean, before that, you, yeah. know, you can go back thousands of years intercepting messengers. But in terms of electronics, right? Basically, you, you as long tap a, a telegram message. Yeah, as long as there have been telecommunications, there have been forms of wiretapping, uh, and uh, th- that there have the laws regulating wiretapping have sometimes had to evolve with uh, the the changes in the technology. Not too surprisingly, um, there was a certain level of of widening of the scope of that that happened back in the uh, in the nineties because suddenly you had so many different devices of, of answering machines and so forth, and uh, when the government needed to go get a wiretap, they needed to be in a position to say that they had to be able to get access to all of those sorts of devices. But uh, really, just since 2004... Has uh, the federal government been uh, pushing through the, the Department of Justice and the FBI uh, to um, to argue that the government also has a need to be able to get into Internet communications the same way? Now, technically, this is a much more complicated problem because you're dealing with uh, packet switching. Um, it's not like you have just one wire on which your message is being transmitted. So technically, there are a lot of issues about how you're going to do that, and uh, the what uh, Whitfield Diffie and Susan Landau talk about is, is a little bit about what's involved in trying to accomplish that. The argument they make is it's possible to do this, but 
it may not be advisable to do it. First of all, because the all the techniques that would make it possible for the uh, government to be able to tap into, say, the voice-over internet telephone calls of drug dealers or suspected terrorists could also be abused to tap into our, all of our information in ways that would really escape a lot of the, the usual kinds of, of um, ways we have of trying to prevent that. And it would also opens up some kinds of backdoor systems, uh, some so that uh, basically hackers uh, and uh, foreign powers could use to hack into our own telecommunications. So their argument was this probably not a good idea to continue to expand um, the the government's ability to uh, to look into our communications that way. But what about you know security? Why why shouldn't the government be allowed to monitor all telecommunications to try to find terrorist chatter? When, you know, we're not doing anything wrong anyway. It's, uh, unless you're David Duchovny, you know, you, <laughs> you don't really care if anybody hears what you're talking about on the phone. <laughs> well, you know, that, that goes into a, obviously a much larger political discussion. We don't go too much into a lot of the debate of that in, in the, uh, uh, in this issue, although it, Obviously, is reflected in some of the the kinds of of uh, positions and background that the uh, the authors have to give. But right, there is always a question in a free society, or what we want to have be a free society, about what is the the level of authority that you give to the government to be able to act on our behalf and provide greater security. Um, a lot of people do look at this, you know, these issues of, of privacy and security as as though they're two goods that are sort of uh, antagonistic to one another. Um, but I think uh, Esther Dyson and a lot of other people would make the argument that's probably a false dichotomy, that in fact you don't really have to sacrifice privacy in the interest of greater security. Let's talk a little bit about some of the, the technology. I know we have an article on the RFID tags, and I, I was at a privacy conference four or five years ago at this point, and I remember one of the speakers was really in a lather about RFID tags and and uh, the, the ability of companies to track your every move because you bought a shirt. Right. Um, RFIDs are radio frequency identification tags. Um, they, they can be really quite small, and the size associated with them gets smaller all the time. Um, the Lots of, of different uh, businesses are interested in trying to incorporate RFIDs into products more and more commonly because they're great for tracking inventory, for example, and for preventing shoplifting and, and lots of problems like that. But as, as has been pointed out, if when you're leaving the store, if uh, that RFID hasn't been deactivated in some way, theoretically, somebody else can uh, be identifying the combination of RFIDs that might be, you know, in the clothes that you're wearing or the products that you're carrying could be used as a way of sort of tracking you. Um, you get into various debates about how technologically feasible that is, about whether or not they have to be very, very close to be able to read those signals, uh, or whether that can be done at more of a distance. But I think it's been demonstrated a number of times, and this is uh, something that uh, the, the article we have on RFIDs gets into, that it has been demonstrated that sometimes that can be done at, at quite a considerable distance. Uh, and that in many cases, even though most RFIDs don't have any uh, real information that you would think of as private about about you, it can nonetheless be used in various ways to start to develop a profile of you or to connect you to other information about yourself or at least you to a set of habits that they might want to take advantage of uh, if they were thieves or anyone else. 
or if they just want to figure out what they can sell you next. Well, that's right. You know, this, I mean, this sort of goes to the, um, the, the what is it? Is it the, the promise or the peril of what you can do with RFIDs? Um, under one sort of speculative um, vision of this, you know, if I wear lots of clothes which have all of these different kinds of of uh, of chips that are embedded in them, and they happen to identify the different uh, types of clothes and models and styles of things that I like. Uh, in theory, as I walk into a store, you could, as I walk through the the, the entranceway of the store, um, computers could quickly get a profile of uh, what I like, what styles I like, what things I might be looking for, and immediately some salesperson could be coming over and tailor their pitch to me. Now, that may sound heavenly or hellish to you, depending on what you think about it. But uh, that's that's really both the, uh, the 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 tragedy or the triumph of what you can get with some of these kinds of of, of technologies. And and it really goes to what is the you know the, all of these issues. There are lots of debates that surround them about how do we want to use them. What what are the the prices we're willing to pay for maybe being able to let some kinds of information out very very freely uh but what are the the downsides what are the what are, what are the prices we're willing to pay but what are the benefits that we could also accrue An- another aspect of the technology is uh, biometrics and and biometrics as identification and uh, i know we have an article about that about the the idea that Oh, forget about knowing all these passwords and carrying a million keys and key cards. Just your fingerprints, your cornea, whatever else you've got, your DNA in a, in a swab can actually open doors for you. Right. Out for, I mean, of course, everybody's very familiar with fingerprints, which uh, go, go far back in terms of being able to identify people as a kind of biological signature that could be associated uh, with just them. A lot of these these kinds of things that you're talking about, about you know, like voice prints or uh, iris scanning and so forth, um, the technologies aren't necessarily brand new, but the the amount of of processing power that it took to be able to implement them um, used to be forbidding. You couldn't you couldn't dream of trying to put it into something like a laptop computer. These days, because computing power has become so cheap, and because we can sometimes link. Uh, uh, wirelessly or otherwise, devices up to other kinds of databases of information very, very easily, uh, it's it's suddenly possible for this to be very easy. So, for example, there are a brand new lines of, of laptops um, that are coming out that uh, the, the camera that is built into the laptop will automatically have a face recognition uh, so that when I sit down to use my laptop, uh, that laptop is keyed into to let me use it, but not if, say, you sat down and tried to present yourself that same way. Mm-hmm. So so these technologies work, and especially if you use them in combinations, uh, there, there are some ways for them to be much more secure than uh, they would be for you if you just had to rely on something like a password you might forget or, or something of that sort. Uh, the, the catch is that the error rates of a lot of these technologies are still a little bit higher than you would like, and you would like to avoid having to use multiple uh, biometric signatures uh, to get you into a laptop or anything else. So, you know, it's an evolving state of the technology, but the point is that's probably closer to where a lot of the uh, the, the future on this lies than us having to try to remember that, uh, you know, you're the, the, the million and one passwords that we're all supposed to have. Really? How many times each week do we, uh, do we say, yeah, I forgot my password. Send it to me. Unless you use the same password for all the things that you try to access 
and that's dangerous too. Yeah, it's, you know, that goes back true to the basic user behavior. One of the other things that we have in the, the issue is a, a round table of, of um, representatives of different companies from the security industry, uh, the, the data security industry, uh, talking a lot about sort of the state of online security and what could be done to conceivably improve that. Um, it's a very interesting discussion. We have part of it that's in the uh, September issue itself, but then people go online to uh, scientificamerican.com. Uh, they can find the, the full version of that because we, we spoke for a good hour and a half. It was a very interesting discussion. But uh, again, one of the points that they made was that bad user experience, a bad consideration for the what it's like to be on the user end, is itself kind of an inducement to security problems. Because the fact is, the rules for having a really good password are that you don't reuse your passwords, and you should use a password that is a random gibberish string for all intents and purposes. The reality is most people don't do anything like that. People do. They have certain passwords that they use over and over again. And the reason why it's often so easy for uh, hackers to be able to get into people's uh, accounts, files of whatever sort, is because, in fact, the the passwords that they use tend to be ridiculously easy to use or to guess. Um, so it's, you know, things like pet names or names of mythological characters or even apparently the number of people who use password itself as their <laughs> password is 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 still insanely high the password is security breach so really you know the question is where are a lot of these things going and 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 one of the points that they made is that when you're trying to devise uh, more secure systems online or for any kind of network system at all you need to be very much aware of of what the user experience is. Because if you make it hard for people to have sort of good security hygiene, they will work around it. <laughs> they will do things like if, if you make it very, very hard for them to transfer a file, say, from one location to another one uh, in a secure way, they will just you know, call up their Gmail account and they'll mail it to themselves. It's right. like, well, then you've completely violated all the protocols of that. Right. So anyway, it's a very, very interesting article that way, getting sort of the insights from the, the security side uh, about what, uh, what are some of the problems uh, that faces online security. Let's talk just a bit. There's a, there's a fun piece in the magazine on, uh, Spy gadgetry. That's right. Yeah, we have just it's a simple sort of pictorial piece that uh, takes a look at uh, a lot of the 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 current and cutting edge of of uh, new kinds of surveillance equipment. Cameras, of course, get smaller and smaller all the time. At these point, it's it, basically it's easy for anybody to have a camera any place, anytime, anywhere, and you wouldn't necessarily know it. Um, but the world of surveillance is constantly expanding. So, for example, and some people may be aware of this, it is possible if you and I are speaking in this room and there are windows over there, um, someone in uh, someone across the street using a laser can actually train the laser on the window panes for this room and measure the minute vibrations uh, of the window glass, um, measure that with the laser and reconstruct what we're saying as a result. Wow. So the, the window glass acts as a speaker. Right. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks to other kinds of, of amazing improvements, uh, you know, robotics uh, means that in principle that, that we're getting closer and closer to the day when you could build a, a sort of little bug spy bot, something that would kind of... It could sort of literally look a little bit like like a, a good-sized insect, um, and it could crawl 
through a heating vent and into the room and position itself well, or it might actually be able to fly around. It might be something that looked like a little dragonfly. Um, so, you know, th- that's also sort of new area, a uh, new era of surveillance that we're in. The reality is that these days, you can almost always be under surveillance. There is, it is almost impossible for you to be absolutely sure, no matter where you are, that, uh, that somebody couldn't be watching you if they wanted to. So, uh, the, the special issue, the future of privacy really sets up the terms of what's going on right now rather than coming to any vast conclusions. That's right. We, you know, this is not, uh, this is not an issue that leads up to a particular, uh, argument of trying to say that, uh, say the, the changes in privacy are a good thing or a bad thing or that we need to do something to, um, you know, curtail certain technologies or to, that, that we're a hundred percent behind certain technologies. In a sense, this is what ha- should happen with any kind of of, of uh, new technology or or set of technologies. We have to debate how we're going to use them. We have to feel our way through that. And reality is, there are pluses and minuses to any of this. Um, the world is always changing, uh, and our conceptions of what we want out of the world are always changing. So, what's smart is for us to learn as much as possible about the technologies involved, the potential issues that are involved, and then make good, prudent choices along the way. The September single-topic privacy issue of Scientific American is available in digital form at www.siam.com slash siammag. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one Chemists have created a new type of cinnamon-based paper packaging that could keep baked goods fresher for an extra 10 days. Story 2. If you want to build a successful galaxy, you better have a minimum mass of at least 10 million times that of our sun. Story 3. Children burn more than four times as many calories per minute playing an active video game than a game they sit to play. And story four, one good thing about a sleepless night, it can depress an overactive immune system. We'll be back with the answer after this. Hello, sports fans. The football season starts this week. To get ready, don't miss Scientific American's special look at the science of football. Learn why coaches should go for it on fourth down more. The mysteries of turf toe. And how former NFL draft pick Leland Melvin became an astronaut. It's all in Siam's special football package at the Siam website, siam.com, and at www.snipurl.com slash siamfootball. Time's up. Story one is true. Spanish researchers have developed a new type of paper packaging made with cinnamon oil, which kills microbes. The packaging appears to keep bread and other baked goods fresh for up to an extra 10 days. The report appears in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. Story two is true. The minimum mass required for a galaxy seems to be about 10 million times that of our sun. That's according to research in the journal Nature. Measurements of the smallest known galaxies found them all to have about that mass, which appears to be what you need to get stars that form within the region to clump together. And story three is true. Active video games get children to burn more than four times as many calories than the sedentary video games do. That research appears in the archives of pediatrics and adolescent medicine. An accompanying editorial is called Active Gaming 
may be part of the solution to the obesity crisis. All of which means that story four about a sleepless night depressing immunity is totally bogus. Because what is true is that even a single night's loss of sleep can rev up immunity against healthy tissues, increasing inflammation. The study is in the journal Biological Psychiatry. So a good night's sleep can lower the risk of heart disease and autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news and to check out the special report on football. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.